G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's podcast is entitled The Plague of Frogs, Escape from Plague, and it focuses on Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. We hope you enjoy the podcast. The reading is from Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let you and your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Well, if my shortcomings as a minister haven't made this clear already, you may have guessed that I wasn't a very good student at theological college. One subject I really struggled with was introduction to the Old Testament. What made this course hard was the fact that my lecturer thought and taught that the Old Testament can't be trusted. He didn't believe Adam and Eve ever existed, Noah and his ark were a fantasy, and you guessed it, the account we just read of Moses was bogus. I found that hard because I believed and still believe in those things, but I wanted to get good marks, so I wrote what I thought my lecturers wanted to hear, and I failed. My heart wasn't in my work, so I flunked my first assignment. I didn't mind getting bad marks, but the thought of having to repeat the subject under a lecturer who rubbished viewpoints I held dear wasn't a good one. I had to pass my final assignment, but I also didn't want to write things I didn't believe. So I chose the hardest topic I could find, an essay on the evidence for the Exodus. I've never worked so hard on an assignment in my life. 
I knew my lecturer wouldn't like my perspective, so I had to be thorough and make sure that I did my homework. My assignment came back covered in red pen. Chunks of the essay had been crossed out and my lecturer ran out of space in the margins to write comments. So they wrote a whole page of criticism questioning what I said on the back of the assignment. But I didn't fail. I passed the subject, and to their credit, my lecturer saw how hard I'd worked and realized that they couldn't fail me. I tell you this story for two reasons. First, if you think of all this frog stuff sounds bogus, please know that there are much smarter Christians than me who agree with you. To the same token, if you believe that the Exodus happened as I do, then know that there are plenty of brilliant scholars who feel like you do. Either way, the book of Exodus has something to teach us all about how we live our lives today. Second, I tell you this story because it's a story of a battle of wills. Today we're going to hear about the greatest battle of wills ever, a ten-round smackdown between the High King of Egypt and the Almighty God. And spoiler alert, God wins. So let's look at the story so far. Over the past three weeks, we've been going through the story of Moses and Exodus. In week one, we saw Moses' miraculous salvation at the hands of some amazing woman and how Moses was born to be a leader, drawn from water, from death to life, to do the same for his people. Last Sunday, we looked at how Moses went from a prince in the king's palace to a murderer on the run to a shepherd in the back blocks. There, Moses meets with, with God in the burning bush and calls him to set his people free. At first, Moses is reluctant, but God arms him by telling Moses he will be with him and giving him his personal name. In Exodus 4, God gives Moses a staff which turns into a snake, the ability to give himself leprosy as a sign, and Aaron, his brother, becomes his spokesman. In Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron politely approach Pharaoh and ask him to let my people go. Pharaoh, predictably, is not jazzed about losing all his workers and says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord that I will let Israel, and I will not let Israel go. He then doubles the workload of his Hebrew slaves. The Hebrews turn on Moses for making their lives harder. At this point, barely anyone believes in the Lord, and they don't think that the Lord is more powerful than Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh, not the Egyptians, not even the Lord's own people. And even Moses says in Exodus 5, O Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. But rather than give up, Moses cries to the Lord in prayer. In chapter 6 and 7, the Lord renews his promise of deliverance and reveals his plan to Moses. He will send plagues on Egypt, such as the world has never seen. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, 1 to 4, it says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people the Israelites, 
and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron again approach Pharaoh. This time, they show him Moses' staff, which turns into a snake. Pharaoh gets his magicians to make their own snake, and so he hardens his heart and sends Moses packing. Now, in times gone by, Moses might have run away scared. But this battle of the wills isn't between Moses and Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh versus God. Moses is living in step with the Spirit of God. The Lord tells Moses to confront Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. And in verse 19 of chapter 7, he says, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron obey God fully, and the river is turned to blood. The Nile was, and still is today, the lifeblood of the nation. Egypt is a desert country, and without the waters of this mighty river, nothing lives. But judgment has been brewing and building. It's as if the blood of the babies thrown into the Nile at the beginning of Exodus rises to haunt Pharaoh. Blood is everywhere, and the poor Egyptians have to dig along the Nile for drinking water. Here we see round one in this battle between God and Pharaoh. Slowly, the one true God is undermining the hold Egyptian gods have on the people. Happy was the Egyptian god of the Nile, but the god of Israel clearly controls the river. Sadly, Pharaoh's magicians conjure up blood themselves, which is a hilarious trick. The one thing Egypt doesn't need more of is blood, and here are the magicians making more fake blood to fake power. This trick bolsters Pharaoh's will, and he returns to his palace, trying to ignore what's going on outside. In chapter 8, God takes things up a notch. The Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. Now, frogs might not seem like much of a threat, but notice how the pressure is rising quite literally. Frogs live in the water and on land, so now judgment is rising out of the waters and coming into people's houses. Rich Egyptians would have lived in villas on the second floor with servants' quarters down below. But these frogs aren't just a servant's problem. Look at verse 3 of chapter 8. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading troughs. Frogs everywhere, breeding like wildfire, invading your every personal space in the most sticky and disgusting way. Moses, through Aaron, warns Pharaoh what is about to happen. But sadly, Pharaoh doesn't budge, and so Aaron, in direct obedience to God's word, reaches out his staff over the waters, and frogs cover the land. Of course, the helpful magicians again rock up, and you guessed it, produce more frogs. But this time, Pharaoh budges a little. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Again, this is a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. 
Hackett, was the frog goddess of fertility. But Pharaoh doesn't ask her to take the frogs away. He asks Moses and Aaron to pray to the Lord. Moses leaves it to Pharaoh to decide when the frogs drop dead. The Lord lets Pharaoh control the time to show how little control he actually has. In verse 12 it says, After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. This passage is written by one who knows the smell of rotting frog carcasses. Here again, we see the suffering Pharaoh's hard-heartedness brings on his own people. Sadly, in the very next verse we read, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. This should shock us to the core and disgust us. At one level, there's a cute story about frogs in people's beds, but on a deeper level, we see how toxic pride is. Pharaoh has heard, seen, and felt God's power, but he refuses to buckle. He won't obey. Friends, in this passage, we need to see there's a bit of Pharaoh in all of us. We think we're in control of our own lives until things get tough. Then we cry out to God, and he changes our circumstances. But then we forget about him. We refuse to see the stench of our sin wallowing in it until we can't ignore it anymore. We doggedly do our own thing without a care for who we hurt. Friends, let's not live lives with hard hearts. Hard hearts hurt us and the people around us. Let's let the plague of frogs remind us that we can't keep the consequences of our sins at arm's length. Pharaoh doesn't learn this lesson. Instead, it will take eight more plagues to change his heart, and in the end, his heart will be broken. The plague of frogs sets a pattern for eight more plagues. Moses asks Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh says no. God reveals his power, and Pharaoh lapses between faith and doubt, hurting his people and the people of God. Chapters 7 to 11 chart the ten plagues. There are three sets of three plagues, all leading up to the final and tenth and worst one. And ultimately, the plagues show us three things. First, they show us God's power. While some have tried to give natural causes to these plagues, like mudslides upriver turning the Nile red, and gnats and flies coming up from the dead frogs causing a chain reaction. But in the end, the number, scope, and timing of these plagues show us that the Lord is ultimately in control. Each plague shows up another Egyptian god, telling us that these gods have no power to save the people. Some plagues don't affect the Hebrews at all, which shows us God's power to protect his people. Second, they show us the futility of evil. While the magicians can fake the first two plagues, they fail to make gnats and drop out of the battle of wills. The plagues reveal how sin brings about an unraveling. Slowly, the environment, which the Egyptians hadn't cared for, begins to unravel on itself. The economy, which had developed on the backs of slaves, is crippled as crops fail and livestock die. Egyptian society collapses as Pharaoh begins to ignore the cries of his people. Evil brings suffering and death. The Egyptian empire, which had blossomed for hundreds, if not thousands of years at this point, 
was brought to a standstill in a matter of months. The Lord exposes Pharaoh, his gods, and all the evil of Egypt in the most shocking way through the plagues. Finally, the plagues show us that miracles can't save us. Even though these miracles are big and flashy, they fail to change Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is confronted by God in the most powerful way, but he will not yield. Similarly, people who met Jesus, God in the flesh, and saw his miracles, refused to trust him, refused to believe in him. Some even put him on the cross to die. If Jesus could have changed people's hearts and saved us through miracles, he wouldn't have gone on the cross. Only God's grace through faith can save us. Friends, Jesus warns us that the future of those who harden their hearts to God is darker than the darkest of the plagues in Exodus. Jesus bore God's judgment so we might be saved. Let's not look for miracles. Let's look to Jesus, the only one who can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And this is where we're going to leave things for today. Next week, we'll look at the final plague. It's horrifying, but it's the gospel before the gospel. Now, the big application of this sermon is repent. We need to call out the hard-heartedness in our own lives and the damage it causes. Where have you hardened your heart to God? Where have you resisted his will in your life? What do you need to bring before God today? So we're going to spend the next minute in silence. And in that time, I want to encourage you to say sorry to God and ask him to soften your heart. Repent and immerse yourself in God's grace today.